My name is Lucy Blue Knight, and you are now listening to the Hot and Sketchy Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. And shout out Dr. Sherman for being my first guest. He is an awesome psychiatrist who I'm so grateful to have on the podcast. On this episode, we chat about all things depression. So hopefully this can serve as a vessel to retrieve helpful information around mental health. And now, without further ado, here is episode one. Hi, Lucy Blue. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for being a guest on this podcast. You're welcome. What? Round two. Round two. Yeah, take two. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, how is your morning going? Good. Busy. I've seen a couple patients already doing this. Got one more and then got to go on hiking. That's my plan. Oh, nice. Okay. Well, thank you for squeezing this in. Sure. Where are you going hiking? Probably something called Eaton Canyon. I don't know if it's, uh, if you know that it's in Pasadena. It's pretty neat. It has a, an old, the ruins of an old hotel and train tracks at the, at the top of it. I've been trying to like do things like hiking instead of having to do my normal gym routine. Yeah, I I think that's I I definitely prefer doing something outside to inside. Are you going alone or with friends? I'm going with my wife and dog. Oh, oh nice. My dog absolutely loves it. It's not too much. No, man. She's <laughs> No, she's fitter than, than, you know, we've done 16 mile hikes and she's like still good to go at the end. And we're 16 dying. miles. Yeah. Wow. You know, what's amazing about dogs, their sense of smell is remarkable. So she, one time on actually on the Eaton Canyon hike midway through, she went like all the way up this kind of side hill. It wasn't the regular trail and came back down with like a full burrito. Like she smelled someone's burrito that I have no idea how it got up there. And Okay, so that's not that remarkable. But what is remarkable is the next time we went, she remembered exactly the spot where the burrito was, went up there looking for it again. Didn't find it. Yeah, Yeah, like they they like have a sense memory of the smell, not just the smell itself. And humans don't. Humans can't do that. uh, No, we, we actually have a pretty good sense of smell, but not like them. Yeah, they use them for, you know, criminal cases because they can remember a smell so like and there could be like people have left a crime scene and they can still smell who was there anyway you want to get into some uh mental health stuff yeah let's chat about mental health yeah i mean we are because i'm a big fan of exercise as you know and uh i think outdoor exercises i can't prove it but i think it's better than, than indoor because the natural sunlight the you know nature itself I think it's not just like, yeah, vitamin D. It's biochemically good, just the way working out in a gym is, but I think it's also like psychologically good. Also people in nature, I find the people on a hiking trail, 99% of them are incredibly nice. And that's fun too. Maybe it's because I have a dog that they interact with me more. Well, the dopamine, you're getting like that dopamine fix. It's like happy, like, I love live food. You're getting a rush. Yeah. But yeah. It's like prior to the hike is when you feel the resistance. You're like, oh, I don't want to. Da, da. But the that's irony true. is when you're there, you feel great. That's true. Yeah. 
and also sometimes the beginning, right? When your body doesn't isn't warm, like mm-hmm. it takes maybe like twenty minutes, and then and you're like, oh, this is hard, and then you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, so you're a psychiatrist. Why don't you give us a little background? Okay. Um, all right. I'm a general adult psychiatrist. I don't really see kids. I'll go down to like 17, 18. Um, I am boarded in adult psychiatry and I'm also boarded or double boarded in addiction medicine as well. Um, I have a private practice and I also do some hospital work at Los Encinas, uh, a freestanding psychiatric hospital in Pasadena. Um, I don't work a lot there, but I, I work there so that if my patients, God forbid, need hospitalization, I can take care of them. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of good inpatient care um, in Los Angeles or maybe even in the country. It's really um, kind of fallen down over time. So I feel an obligation to do that in case, like I said, in case a patient needs it, because otherwise you just don't always get optimal, optimal care. A lot of telehealth right now. Um, I wish it was more in person. I am seeing people in person, but I'll get like one or two a day. That's a whole, you know, subject in itself. Um, you know, it has advantages and that it's convenient. Disadvantages are it's just not the same thing as in person. And you, you can miss things, actually. In fact, I missed this problem this, this patient had because it was below his waist. And mm-hmm. you, really you're only seeing like, you know, their upper body. Mm-hmm. And uh, he actually got up to go to the bathroom in the middle of an appointment. And then I saw this essentially neurologic problem that was happening with his legs, but it was happening as a result of one of my medicines. And it had been going on for two months. I said, why didn't you tell me about that? He's like, I don't know. It didn't really bother me. It was just weird. So what was it? So it has a fancy name. It's called called tardive akathisia. Uh, Tardive means delayed so if you take a medicine it doesn't happen right away which makes it tricky to catch akathisia is a restlessness syndrome where it can either be internal or external in this case it was external for him internal is way worse it's actually very uncomfortable you feel like you're crawling out of your skin and you're restless inside it actually can be quite dangerous there are people that have committed suicide over it in his case his was like external so he was just couldn't stop moving his legs which is still a big problem I said, how, this isn't a problem in your life. And I, again, he was doing his business from, from, you know, on the computer. So no one saw it either. So he just, he's one of these people who just ignored it. Um, but if he had been in person, which is my main point, I would have seen that in my office. I would have seen it two months earlier. Worse. And anyway, the point I was trying to make is it's, there are a lot of things you miss, you know, although there are things you gain too, right? Like you get to see someone's environment, you know, like I see your cool blue couch and the, and the painting you have, you know. So there are there are things you would never learn, um, but it's interesting because a lot of mental health uh, treatment is being conducted this way at this point. Like I'd say it's probably 90%. Okay, so I have some questions written down. So off the bat, I want to know how you recognize depression over sadness. It's a great question. And, and it's fun. And, 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 you know, lay people don't understand the difference. So I'm really glad you asked. I, I play tennis. I have a tennis coach and he's always asking me questions. And Is he? Yeah. He like, it's, he gets 10 minutes of, of free psychiatric advice or questions. And um, <laughs> the last time I played, which was on Friday, he was like, so people that are depressed, do they just need to like pull themselves up by the, for their bootstraps, get tougher? 
I was like, I'm really glad you asked that question. So this is the thing. There's a huge difference between unhappiness and like biological depression. And people just don't understand. A lot of people, even other physicians don't always understand or other, you know, well, usually psychologists do, but not always. So here's the difference. Like, I'm going to give you the biological difference because it's so drastically demonstrates that they're different. All right. And then we'll talk about like kind of more clinically. Okay? okay. So because we have the ability to image the brain and the brain's functioning actually in the last 20 years, it's been very helpful to answer questions like this. Okay. So there's a number of different technologies, PET scan, fMRI. Uh, it, it, for the sake of this discussion, it doesn't matter. Let's just talk about PET scans. Okay. All you need to know is they show brain activity or lack of activity. Okay. So how do you study unhappiness is a little tricky, right? So what we've done is pick something that's a model of unhappiness that isn't really depression. So we'll use grief. So somebody who's grieving a loss, right? And look, they do overlap a little bit, even clinically, because people that are grieving are sad. You take a picture of a grieving person's brain, a functional picture. And what do you think you see? Do you think you see a lot of abnormalities? What is your guess? Admiral, is that what sparks like, out when you're sad? You think you would see a lot of things that are wrong, they're off in the brain. Yeah, yeah, they're in a low frequency. And actually, you don't. Oh, yeah. okay, okay. The brains look pretty normal. Surprisingly enough, there's little areas that are often overactive, but they're very small, okay? Now, if you take someone who has biochemical depression, let's say it's at least moderate, not mild the brain looks dramatically bad. Mm, mm, okay. severe depression, it can look pretty close to dementia. When somebody is depressed, clinically depressed, their brain looks terrible on a PET scan. When somebody's unhappy, their brain looks normal. Okay, so clinically, the difference is people that have depression have a physical disorder, which makes sense from what I'm saying, right? You can see it, but they also have physical symptoms. So they will lose their appetite. Their sleep will be completely disrupted. They will have no energy. They will not be able to concentrate or remember things. Um, and, and this is in addition to sadness. This is where people get confused between unhappiness and depression. Unhappiness is really just mood, generally speaking. You know, you're, you're bummed out. You're in a bad mood. And it can be, even be on, on the regular. And there is overlap, like mild depression and unhappiness are harder to tease apart. And that's actually hard in my job. Like, do I recommend psychotherapy, exercise, or do I recommend a medicine? So I'll get back to that because that's related to, is this unhappiness or depression or somewhere in between? But, but like real hardcore, obvious depression, there are always physical symptoms. We call them neurovegetative signs. You know, doctors have to make up fancy words. Um, but what the, that means is like appetite, energy, sleep, concentration, right? Achy. Achy, yeah, achy, yes. Physical, there's yeah. actually, yeah, there's something called, <laughs> this came from like Freud, Freud's time called leaden paralysis. And and so not everybody, but many people with depression feel like their limbs are heavy. Uh-huh. Like they're walking around in molasses. And, and so that's the difference. And that's not to say that unhappiness is not a problem, by the way, right? right. It's a problem that I take seriously. It's just a different problem. And by the way, you could have both. And so, this is, you know. So there's nothing to blame when someone's unhappy or depressed. Like you can't blame either. They're both like shitty situations. Well, yeah. 
Blame's a tricky word, Lucy Blue, but they are both shitty situations. That's that I could say for sure. Um, they they definitely have different causes. I like to use the word cause rather than blame. Okay, okay. And causes and causes in, in the brain are not simple, but for example, biological depression often has a genetic component. Let's put it that way, right? Like if you were to take identical twins, mm-hmm. they had the same genes, which isn't exactly accurate, but they were born with the same genes, let's say, and one of them gets depressed, the odds of the other one getting depressed is very high because, because they have a genetic predisposition or propensity to depression, okay? That being said, you could take any human being and if you stress them enough, you can get any brain depressed, I would argue. But enough trauma will create depression yes. down the line. Yes. It would take more for someone who's less, you know, genetically vulnerable. So right? is trauma therapy a good, would you recommend that first before medication? Or how do you typically decide what the best move is? Right. Just because you have depression or even unhappiness doesn't mean you have trauma. Right. So mm-hmm. trauma is a separate mm-hmm. problem. Okay. However, it does cause depression frequently, to your point. So if somebody has trauma, do I recommend trauma therapy? It depends, is the answer. Also, what kind of trauma? Because there's basically two kinds of trauma. And what but, is that? So there's there's um single episode trauma. In other words, like you witnessed a murder or it was a single event. Okay. 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 Or, or like you had a sexual assault that was a single event. Okay. We call that, yeah, like acute or single episode trauma, concrete trauma. Um, and then there's what we call complex trauma. So complex trauma is you had a lot of trauma growing up. It wasn't just one event. So single episode trauma, single incident trauma responds really well to trauma therapies. Mm, okay. Okay. Complex trauma, it gets a little more challenging. Sometimes it responds. Sometimes it makes it worse. It's really, it's really a tough call. So it can Uh, like bring the dirt to the surface and then. Yeah, Yeah, that's, that's a good way of thinking about it. And if there's a lot of dirt, it's, it's, it's harder. And sometimes they'll just start with non-trauma therapies or trauma related therapies, like just teaching somebody to be calm, teaching them to ground, teaching them to like calm their nervous system and get good at that before you're like going over traumatic experiences. Okay. So I definitely feel like I experience depression, like randomly some days I'll wake up and I just feel like literally nothing is wrong but I just feel like on low power mode and then my energy is so low and I feel like so frustrated that I can't accomplish what I want to accomplish because my energy levels are low right honestly like I do have fear around getting on an antidepressant even though I know that that is a very helpful tool I just like have fear around it um what would you recommend as like a way to heal that because you know they say like antidepressant is a band-aid right okay like type 1 diabetes right which is starts as a kid you need insulin your pancreas doesn't make insulin right 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 right, right. insulin fixes the problem but it doesn't cure it because it doesn't make your pancreas make insulin all it does is replace the insulin right you have to keep taking insulin the rest of your life so antidepressants don't they fix the problem they don't just they, they literally fix the problem like all those brain areas that are you know not working in a pet scan will completely reverse your brain will look normal if you take an antidepressant and it works 
and you treat the depression, your brain will go back to normal. However, and there are some people where it will completely heal it. Like if they don't have a long family history of depression, not a lot of depressions themselves, what led to the depression was circumstantial or psychological. Even those people have a 50% chance of it coming back in their life. But there are people like that, that you take the medicine for six months to a year, totally heals the problem. If you were to look at it on a PET scan, it would get better. Then they go off and then they're fine. Okay. In some circumstances, it can completely cure it. Um, but in many circumstances, if you take the antidepressant away, unfortunately, the brain will regress back to a depressed state. But I wouldn't say it's a Band-Aid. It does, because if it was a Band-Aid, then your brain, you would feel better, but your brain would still look bad, right? The, the areas that are damaged completely remit and go back to normal, okay? Not so black and white. It's not black and white at all. And, uh, you know, one of the things I face in my practice all the time is, do we try to take this person off their antidepressant? And there's three things you ask when you ask that question. One, how bad was the depression itself? Well, there's four things. <laughs> Two, how genetically loaded was it? In other words, like, does everyone in their family have depression? Are there suicide attempts, hospitalizations? Um, and then three, how recurrent or chronic? Is this the first episode? Have they had four episodes? Do they always have chronic mild symptoms that are always there? All kinds of chronicity predict it coming back. And then the last thing is how willing are they to do non-medication interventions? Mm, and what right. is that? Basically, there's essentially three things. There's exercise, which is incredibly powerful. We were talking about earlier. There's psychotherapy. And there's different kinds, but there's psychotherapy. And then there's um, um, mindfulness training. All of these things have been shown to, to help with depressive symptoms. And then as a soft, a soft thing that doesn't have a ton of proof, good nutrition and good sleep. Good sleep actually does have evidence. So basically good self-care, psychotherapy, mindfulness, and exercise. Are they willing to do some, if not all of those things? I, if I can, I always try to, to, to think about what is, what is going to help and do the least harm or what is the least invasive thing to do, right? So let me ask you a question. You, 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 it's not every day that you have this, right? You, you're no, it's not. And I almost wonder like if it's almost like a compass showing me that something in my life is off and I need to change it. It's funny that you say that because if you were to ask the evolutionary purpose of depressed mood, not biochemical depression, like being bummed out. It's probably, yeah, to have feedback that whatever you did in the environment was not a great choice, was not a good right. decision. It gets That's tricky. What I to want to believe in, like it feels the most like rational to my brain is to think like I'm experiencing this like fog because I need to change something in my life. Like it, yeah, it's totally natural to think that. And humans are narrative-based beings, meaning like we come up with stories and explanations for things. We don't, we don't like it when there isn't a clear explanation. And a lot of times an explanation in, in mental health is you, like you're to blame. It's just not always true. It's very convenient because you're available, right? If, if you're the problem, well, easy to fix, fix you. But sometimes you're not the problem. Like it's just biochemical. Like for example, you said, Sometimes you wake up feeling down and there's no particular reason. Now, I guess what you're suggesting is, well, maybe there is a reason. I don't know what it is. Like a grander reason, almost like like, yeah. an occupation shift or an ego death. Yeah. So 
the way I think about these things is, especially because it's hard to separate them. I think about kind of doing as much as my patient is willing to do. Okay. I think about starting non-invasively, like start psychotherapy, start exercise, meditation, good nutrition, and that kind of stuff. Remove stressors that you can remove, right? Like what? Well, I don't, that, that would be specific to you. Like okay. What, but like what? in general, like what comes to mind when you're diagnosed or like with a toxic, a, a toxic relationship would be like okay, a very toxic. common one. And, and actually just to show you how confusing it is and how gray it is and not black and white. I have seen people that had biological symptoms of depression, neurovegetative symptoms. And I was like on the verge of maybe I'm going to write a prescription for this person. Right. And then they end this toxic relationship, and all of a sudden, within a week or two, all those symptoms are gone. Mm. But that's kind of similar to what I was saying earlier. Enough stress will make anyone depressed, right? So, yeah, that's and then a, it sucks because it's like they're in this toxic relationship, and they don't even realize that it's a toxic relationship. Yeah, yeah sometimes they don't, and whatever you do medically might not work because it's being kind of sabotaged by this stress mm. I'll, actually let me prove that to you i learned I think, a lot from doing working in a free clinic in venice a long time ago it's a community mental health clinic and, and here was one of the most amazing cases i had this guy he just had so much external stress going on he had i'm going to see if i can say this without like revealing anything but he had relationship stress on multiple fronts family stress uh significant other stress he had a major medical problem was untreated he kept losing jobs. He had drug abuse. He was intermittently homeless, like really all the stressors you can possibly think of, right? And so meanwhile, my role in that clinic is very limited. We literally can prescribe medications and that's kind of it. And you get very little time. I, I rotated through all of the antidepressants we had because the guy was depressed, like biochemically depressed, all, all those signs I was saying he had. And none of them worked, right? And I actually was like, on the second or third round of going through, because I just didn't have a whole lot of other tools, but we had a great social work team. So eventually all those stressors got settled, got rid of the toxic relationship, reunited with his family, got off the street, got a job, stopped doing drugs, got the medical problem addressed. And I was back to the top of the list, which was Zoloft, by the way, which um, is really not the strongest medicine, ironically, that we had, probably in the weakest class. And um, that's a whole controversy in itself, like which antidepressant is stronger than others. But from my point of view, that's the weakest class. So I started him on the Zoloft because I just don't know what to do. Still depressed. And all of a sudden, the Zoloft worked. Where it failed two or three times before. Why? Because whatever I was putting in chemically, the world was taking out is a good way of thinking about it. To my point, enough stress. Didn't work. It didn't work two times. And then it worked and it wasn't even that strong a medicine because all that toxic stuff had been removed. So it's never as simple as give somebody a medicine. Wait, you cut out for a second. I, I said, it's never as simple as I just hand somebody a pill. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I always recommend these other things. Sometimes people aren't willing to do other things. And often in the beginning, so so you can rate depression. There are depression scales. And okay. Can, and, and they're not perfect, but you can get a rough idea of how badly depressed somebody is. Okay. So that's a way, that's one way of deciding, do you want to use a medication or not? So if somebody's in the mild range it, and they don't, let's say, have depression their whole lives and their family's full of depression and they're functioning, they're going to work. 
it is perfectly reasonable to recommend non-medications. And that's what I usually do. Psychotherapy, exercise, mindfulness, you know, removing stress, nutrition, et cetera. Good and then like, okay, so if I'm deciding I don't want to be on an antidepressant and then I have this depressed day, I have to just surrender to it and try to fight it. Yeah, I mean, the best way to fight it immediately is aerobic exercise. The things like mindfulness or meditation, unfortunately, they're skills. So they take time to develop. Um, no, good physical activity is literally the biggest key, but it's about getting myself to do it. On, and then when I'm doing it, I feel great. Like we talked about in the beginning of this podcast. Yeah, it's 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 hard though. It's a, it's a dilemma because when people are having a depressed day or are just feeling depressed, they're even less motivated to do it. So sometimes I'll split the difference and I'll say, look, I'm going to start you on this medicine. I know you don't want to be on it, yeah. but maybe it gets your mood a little better and then you can That's exercise. Cool to get you there. And then, and then, and then we'll try to peel it away. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, unfortunate, and I'm really glad you're, you're asking these questions and we're having this podcast because the media in general does not report the complexity that goes, you know, like I remember there was a Time Magazine um, front cover that was like antidepressants don't work, right? I don't know if you remember that. That's kind of dangerous, right? It is dangerous, it is. And, um, you, you know, um, there was another front cover, I forgot what magazine, but like antidepressants cause teen suicides, you know? Um, and it's really, it's really inaccurate to report it that way because it's just not that simple. I mean, in fact, it's not even true. So this is a good example of what I mean. When it came out that suicidal ideations, suicidal ideas can go up very rarely in when, when teens are treated with antidepressants, turns out it's true in adults too. It's like 1%. By the way, it's not increased attempts. It's just thoughts. Mm -hmm. So because that was reported, just thought well, that's it's a weird, right? Weird. No one has an explanation. Well, that's fucking part of the explanation, in my opinion, is like half of those people are undiagnosed bipolar patients. They have a different condition. That's a whole nother discussion. But uh, uh, there are people I have seen adults get suicidal thoughts, not bipolar, no, no explanation, just weird. Like the system was tweaked. I got to tell you, in my practice, it's pretty rare. Like I can count it on one hand when they weren't bipolar as an explanation. So again, that's another part of the complexity is some people are misdiagnosed and so they get on an antidepressant, they get they get switched to what's called a mixed state and they get suicidal thoughts and they just weren't really, didn't have pure depression. But anyway, going back to the teenage suicide thing. So when this came out in the press, like, oh my God, you know, suicide goes up with antidepressants in teenagers. That's how it was reported. Guess what happened? 30% reduction in antidepressants for teenagers. Okay, which some people think is a good thing, but there was an 18% increase in actual suicide attempts oh. because they weren't getting treated for severe depression. And so it's very important that these things get reported correctly. And here's an, and so the, the, the magazine cover that said antidepressants don't work. Well, it's very complicated, okay? Because think about this, anyone who goes to a, a medication study, right? Whether it's in a university or a drug company doing it, is not that severe for, because if you're severely depressed, you can't show up and do all the work, right? Mm -hmm. And people with milder conditions are more placebo sensitive. They respond to sugar pills for a brief period of time. So it's much harder to show a drug works 
if, you, if, if your population that you're treating is very mild. So if they were to ask the question, well, if we took a subset of studies where it was only really de severely depressed patients, the antidepressant effectiveness goes way, way up over placebo. But they don't report things like that. They just report the, the, the sort of dramatic one-liner, antidepressants don't work. Well, that's just not true. You know, and if it is, how would I have a practice? Since what most psychiatrists see is depression and anxiety. If I wasn't helping people with medicine, at least some of the time, anyway, it's frustrating when it gets reported in a non-complex way. And I know it's harder to understand complexity, but mm. the world's complex. So how does someone who is experiencing depressive symptoms, like talk to their, or like notify their loved ones and friends that they're just experiencing that and it's not like I don't know sometimes I feel like I'm a burden when I'm in that low state yeah. and I am not showing up as my shiny self around people I love yeah. like I I'm trying to figure out the best way to like navigate that right now that's a really good question um thank you it's a tough question partly because of the question you asked before that people can't separate depression and unhappiness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, because you wouldn't even ask that question. Like if, if you were to say, well, um, I'm having a, a lupus flare and like my whole face is red. I have a malar rash and I'm fatigued. And I look crappy and people know I have lupus. You wouldn't have to explain to them why you're sick. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or to keep it simpler, like you broke your leg and you have a cast on, you know, there's no explanation required. But the problem right, is right. When, we get, when we get into disorders of the mind, people get confused about them. Because people could be like, cheer up, you know, and like, it's sweet and it's super like, exactly. Like, I appreciate it, but I wish that yeah. like, there was a better understanding that like, sometimes I just like, can't cheer up, like. I mean, I, I hope that you'll learn something from this podcast and explain it to them. You know, this is a condition that I have like diabetes, like any condition. And it's not something I can just will myself out of. It's Sometimes like, I feel like, like I'm succumbing to being a victim yeah. when I decide that I have biochemical depression or whatever. Like, I honestly like don't want to even identify with that. I have a lot of patients that struggle with that. I, I guess my way around that is I do think people are responsible for fixing their problems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think you also have life. Yeah, but I think you also have to pick the right tool. If you pick the wrong tool, it's not going to get better. And that's not even necessarily your fault. It could just be ignorance, right? Like if you have okay. biochemical depression, the right tool is not, hey, just cheer up. <laughs> like whether you whether someone says that to you or 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 says it to yourself. I think victimhood would be well i'm just going to do nothing about this and just be depressed mm -hmm. i would view that as you know accept accepting victimhood right mm -hmm. but i think what you're struggling with is if i concede to taking an antidepressant then somehow i am being victimized i am i am a victim but i i don't see it that way especially if you've tried all the natural stuff and it didn't work and you have biological symptoms of depression to me you're taking responsibility by taking that medication because oh, maybe no internet connection unstable oh no <laughs> just like my mental health no i'm just kidding <laughs> i mean one responsible action is to see a doctor or a psychologist and mm. talk and talk it over with them what should i do about this depression uh, to be fair 
it's hard. Like people that are oppressed are not motivated, but I still would hold them or their family responsible for doing something about it. Well, it's like, okay, here's the fear around that. One, maybe someone is afraid of like myself being on an antidepressant. Yeah. And like, you know, the media, the movies, they make it seem like you go to a psychiatrist, they shove pills down your throat and they send you away. Like you have to admit to yourself that you're feeling low to see a psychiatrist. Like that takes a lot too, because you're overcoming that victim mentality. But truthfully, that's like the biggest act of self-care. If, if, look, if you're severely depressed, you can't get out of bed every day, you can't function. You just need to go on a medication and that, that is black and white. Okay. But everything before that, if you're functioning and it's, you're just struggling, then you want to try all the natural stuff, exercise, meditation, yoga, nutrition, good sleep hygiene. However, uh, you probably, if you do that, you're really doing it seriously for like even two months or even a month. These things work pretty quickly if they're going to work. So I just sort of stay factual. Okay. So you do the things that are non-invasive first, if they're not working, then you do the thing that's a little more invasive and you take a medication in addition to do those things. And then, then the next question is how long do you stay on it? And that depends if, if it's, Again, less severe, essentially, higher odds that you can get off the medication. But that's there's an order to it, and that, that's how I think about it, okay? And so, and, you know, the stuff that's in TV and movies, there's some truth to it. Like, there, you know, there are thoughtful doctors, and there are doctors that, that aren't as thoughtful, you know, or even a lot of times primary care doctors, they just hear you're bummed out. And, and you know, I don't, some primary care doctors are very thoughtful, you know, but here's the truth. Medicaid, antidepressants are overprescribed. And they're also underprescribed. Both are true. People don't get treated that should. And people that have happiness problems get handed pills. Mm. And the problem is the media presents it as if they're just, you know, you're just doctors are just handing out pills. But really, again, it's more complex. You can tell if a doctor is good by how thoughtful they are. Are they having this kind of discussion with you? Or are they like, okay, I've heard enough after 10 minutes. Here's some Prozac. Mm -hmm. or whatever antidepressant they write okay you know and they're just and they're having discussion with you about what the medicine does and what its side effects are and you know if they're having a complex discussion with you and spending time with you they're much more likely to be thoughtful and you're going to get good care so i think some of the fear does come from a real thing where doctors don't have a lot of time not even blaming the doctors but like because of insurance pressure patient uh, doctors that take insurance often don't have a lot of time to spend with patients and that matters. Like, then they don't think carefully through the options. It's like easier just to be like, well, here's a prescription. Like, so Kaiser psychiatrists have like 3,000. I could be exaggerating, but I've had friends that work there. It's thousands of patients. And they're allowed like 15 minutes to see. They're not allowed enough time. This is silly. This is absolutely silly. It's, it's a whole different discussion about our healthcare system. So I think one really good indication is they take a lot of time with you and they explain things to you so that you're an active participant. And for me, it's very important that my patients understand the nature of their condition and what their options are. Because so if your patient doesn't feel connected to you and understanding what's going on, they're less likely to take their medicine if you prescribe it consistently. Lots of studies to show that. Um, and believe it or not, the medicines don't work as well because belief in the medicine actually matters. And belief in, and yep, isn't that interesting? Belief in your doctor and belief in the medicine affects the outcome. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, so I'm inspired now to make like an herbal 
supplement that I'm going to call my daily antidepressants. Yeah. Leap an intention in that. And that would work even the slightest bit as a placebo, wouldn't it? It might. Yeah, it might. Um, a lot of placebos wear out though. Um, you know, they'll work great for like two months. Again, it gets back to how bad is the problem? So the government did a study called the star D study and it was 7,000 patients. They started with so very large number of patients. So that makes it very good data. Um, and they did four different levels. Basically you started off with select. So you started off with this one antidepressant, 16 weeks. Um, and then anybody who got all better dropped out of the study. If you were partially better or not better at all, you went to level two, which was either switch medicines or add one, right? If you had a partial response, you might add one. Another 16 weeks, right? So the first 16 weeks, 35% of people went to remission and dropped out of the study. So that means after 16 weeks of a good antidepressant, 65% were still not well, okay? Then they basically did the same thing again, add or switch, another 16 weeks. And I think it was like, 20% went to remission. Don't quote me on these numbers, but they're more or less correct. So now you still have 45% after half a year that are not well. Okay? Third level, same thing, add, switch, some kind of medical change. And then it was like 17%. Anyway, they went through four levels. So a whole year of treatment, four different attempts to change meds, and 80% of people were well, and 20% were still not well. It's one in five people after a year of psychiatric treatment, good treatment too. Because studies like that make sure someone's taking the medication, they're compliant, right? They're, they're having regular visits. So another sort of myth is you go in and get an antidepressant, you get all well. And it's just not always true. In fact, any given antidepressant, most optimistic odds would be like 45% chance you get well, completely well. 60% chance of responding, meaning improvement, but not wellness. Wellness is the absence of symptoms. There's a reason for the word patient, you know? Um, and it's really, it's really, and this is where the relationship with your doctor is. Very oh, important. wait, that's so interesting. Patient, like you have to be patient. The patient has to be patient. Whoa. So the relationship with the doctor or the therapist is very important to keep that hope up. Okay. Now I can't really get in, I'm getting really granular if I was getting to how I actually make these adjustments and when, but, um, I'm pretty aggressive. We have pretty good data that like, if you're on a decent dose and you're taking your medicine, Two weeks after that, there should be response, not, not remission, not all better, but improvement. And if there isn't, the odds of that medicine working at that point are like zero to 5%. When I was trained, the way we were trained is start a medicine, wait three months. Well, gosh, at the end of three months, if somebody's not better, you just wasted a lot of time. So there's been a lot better science since then, including the STAR-D had data like this showing that if you're going to respond or if you're going to go to remission on a medicine, you, you already start responding two weeks in. And if you don't, it's not a good sign. We try. We're just talking about medications, but there's other treatments. There's TMS, there's ketamine, there's ECT, there's, you know, there's other treatments that are more invasive. Actually, I would view them as more invasive than medication. Um, Do you feel like ketamine therapy is more invasive? There are, there are people that would disagree with me about that. I mean, yeah, no, I've heard a lot of positive, positive experiences from it. You definitely get an antidepressant response, but my problem is, I see it go away. The ketamine clinics I work with originally said, well, this is why we repeat ketamine treatment six months later. Hmm. People will be good for, yeah, it turned out now they're doing it three months, which 
makes more sense to me. It's but kind of you know, like you decide if you want to be on an antidepressant or reoccurring, do one of these ketamine sessions. I mean, yeah, well, there are people that have failed a lot of antidepressants and they don't have a choice. And there's psilocybin's coming. The FDA has fast-tracked it. There are lots of studies. I mean, there's something to these things for sure, but they need to figure out a way to sustain the response. Now, there are certain situations, like you're just desperate to get somebody better. I had a family member who had cancer. Um and needed treatment immediately and was like what we would call like catatonically or melancholically depressed like probably should have been in a hospital not sleeping not eating not showering you know just a mess and the cancer doctor was like i can't treat her like this this is a, a relative of mine and meds weren't working so she got ketamine and it was a miracle like basically in 10 days she was up cooking breakfast and cracking jokes cracking eggs and cracking jokes you know wow. it was remarkable okay however as predicted, as I just said, she got her and she got all her chemo and her surgery and all that. That was great. Two months later, you know, she regressed and they did. And then she did TMS and, and they did finally find some medications that worked plus TMS. But that's the problem. You know what? That was the best money we ever spent on that ketamine, though, because otherwise her breast cancer was going to be like growing without treatment. So as a rescue treatment, it's amazing. But as a treatment that's going to keep you out of your depression, I'm not so impressed. Um, I think they just need to work on it. Like, here's the problem is you get six treatments of ketamine, then it stops. Why well, does it make sense, right? Antidepressants, you have to keep taking them for them to work. So I think they have to figure out how to microdose it ongoing. Maybe it's once a week or once, a, you know. Okay. And so what about, what about mushrooms, microdosing mushrooms? Same thing, right? That's psilocybin. So, you know, I'm a scientific guy, you know, so I like studies and, what I'm trying to say about all the hallucinogens, LSD too, is I, I've seen them have an antidepressant effect or, and even an anti-trauma effect too. There's a lot of good for trauma, um, but we need to, we just need more science. We need to figure out like how to really do this so that the effect is sustained. So it keeps going. You know, I had one guy, um, you know, I'm just going by his report, but he really cured himself of an incidental trauma in one-time trauma, he tried the regular trauma treatments and he did it with weed. He would go, he didn't smoke a lot, but he would go to a park. He would smoke weed. This isn't depression, but he would smoke weed and he would replay the memories of his trauma. He would reprocess them on the weed. And he said, every time he did it, he felt them release. And after a year of doing it, they were gone. No so, way. Keep in mind, he did it for a year, right? Wow. It, it wasn't six treatments of ketamine. And so, and then he was able to stop, thank goodness. The point is there's something to hallucinogens for sure. I don't think anybody would argue that point. We need more science to be clearer about it. So for example, for trauma treatment, I think it's pretty clear that there should be a mixture of taking a hallucinogen and then having therapy after it, not just- 100%. Actually in the seventies, they used to do LSD before psychotherapy. There were books about it, LSD psychotherapy. Um, but then the the war on drugs started, you know, and like the sort of counterculture, the war against hippies, the war against drug use. And so that all got became illegal. LSD became a class one schedule one drug it, it, it still is illegal. But it's sad because they threw out the baby with the bathwater. Like there was something to what those doctors were doing. And now we're coming back to it. It's funny. I mean, 53 years later, we're coming back to realizing, hey, there was something to these hallucinogens. It's unquestionable. They have an effect. Um mm -hmm. But we need to understand dosing better. We need to understand sustaining it better. We also need to understand who's there are. They're not free of risk. 
for example, people with really bad psychiatric anxiety disorders like panic disorder, they can really freak out. It can really make their condition worse. So yeah, because it like brings the dirt. To the, I this is how my perception of microdosing feels like it. It just becomes really clear of the things that in my life that I need to shift, and wow. that's what that led to my belief of depression being a compass. Yeah, I don't think it's as simple as that, but a lot of people uh, that depression is simply a compass. It can be. It depends. Um, but a lot of people report what you're saying when they take hallucinogens that um, things come to the surface. It creates like a consciousness shift or a shift in perspective. You can get a lot of those same effects with, with meditation, but 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 you know that takes a lot more work. And I have a guy who he literally failed every treatment, every Western treatment for depression. I mean, he literally tried everything. So he went down to South America. The last thing he tried, and he took ayahuasca mm. with, with like a legitimate shaman though mm. and it wasn't just ayahuasca it was a whole diet and all these herbs and guess what it put him in remission okay however as i have said about other hallucinogens so right now what he has to do is he flies down it, it wears off in about two months so every two months he it's in brazil he flies to brazil in the rainforest and does this ayahuasca with his shaman um, and, and, and I, I do therapy with him because I do therapy. I don't just always do meds as, as you know, uh, would be indicated by kind of my style. Um, I do his therapy, but I'm not giving him any medication because none of them worked. And that's, that's the best that we've got. And it does last him two months. So that's good. So basically his treatment is he goes down there. And by the way, it was a huge problem during the pandemic. So he found some guy in Texas to wow. do it, but it wasn't. It wasn't, who knows if it's the ayahuasca or all the other stuff this guy, the shaman's having him do. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's not ideal. It's really expensive to fly down to Brazil every two months and do this and, you know, and really taxing. But you know what? It's better than being dead because he's made serious suicide attempts before this guy. Wait, he, my internet just totally dipped out. I saw that. I saw that glitch. Um, okay, okay. There was a, but... a glitch in the matrix okay don't open yeah. that can of worms with me right now not at the end not at the end of the session that's a whole other thing that we're just like you know we're just a hologram sorry, don't get me into that right now <laughs> all right let's see what i want i'm sorry okay 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 really anyway the, the point is everyone is different that story I just told you is very rare. It's very rare. I can't get somebody better with a more conventional means, but hallucinogens are kind of the future wave of new treatments for depression. And I just wish they would hurry up and study them better because it seems like it's taken a long time to me. We've had ketamine approved, you know, for a couple of years now. But the truth is we've known these things work for a long time, uh, but we don't have really good protocols. We should have protocols about how to microdose it. We should have protocols for how to do it before uh, psychotherapy for depression for trauma there's evidence for ocd and numerous psychiatric conditions and it, it's i think it's promising and i also think we need more information like i know exactly how to use prozac exactly you know i know exactly how to use i'm just making up name well be trainer right there's a lot of science not just for how to begin but how to continue how to get off what the side effects are what the risks are i we need that kind of information for hallucinogens Mm-hmm. 100%. But it's just like only becoming legal now. 
Yeah, which is ironic. Like I said, it was they were doing it in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Happened, you know, it's a political thing. What happened? There was a huge war against, you know, hippies and druggies, probably simplifying a bit there. But, you know, because getting high from from drugs became very popular in the 70s. And, 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 and there was a backlash, you know, you know, doing drugs and like checking out and just being like, you know, a hippie and being high and being against. Mm-hmm. It was looked down upon. It was looked down upon. And unfortunately that cost us a lot if you think about it because studied wait you're cutting out again can you hear me are you can you hear me yes yes okay it became it became illegal and we and we lost a lot of time unfortunately fact Oh, the, uh, whole, the whole U.S. policy towards drugs is a whole nother podcast. I know we're gonna get into it. I feel like this is um just the beginning. But let's end it on the note of the power of momentum uh-huh. as a way to climb out of a low place. External so- pressure to create momentum, I think, is really helpful. So that means either hiring a trainer, a coach, or getting a friend who's actually reliable. So for example, my neighbor built a gym in in his garage. And for the last six months, we've been lifting weights together. And both of us had said, we would never be doing this if it wasn't for each other. And if it wasn't for how convenient it was. And we're not even depressed. You know, Mm -hmm. I really believe in trying to make it easy for yourself to do these things, right? If you want to meditate, get a teacher, get a meditation teacher, right? If you want to exercise, get a friend or a coach or a trainer, especially if you're depressed because you need that momentum. And once you get it going too, it has momentum, but to create the momentum, you often need some external energy. Okay. Or it's like even maybe like having a vitamin regimen where you get the momentum of taking your vitamins every day and resetting it. And it like creates this routine for yourself and you feel so proud of yourself that you did it. Then right. you want to clean your Feeds room. Because you feel good about doing it in the first place. All right. Mm-hmm. I got to run Lucy Blue. It has been okay. wonderful. Thanks for all your really good questions today. They were Thank really- you for being here.